Good evening, everyone. May I ask those who are interested in our panel discussion to please join us and take a seat, please. Beautiful evening it is to dusk, lovely time, transition <laughs> from day to night. Well, welcome everybody. It's very, very nice to see you all here. Thank you for taking the time out of a busy evening, I'm sure, to spend an hour or so with us, an hour and a half to be exact. Um, my name is Suhanya Rafal. I am a trustee of Jeffrey Bawa Trust and Lunuganga Trust and have been since 1993 when we formed the trusts primarily to first look after Jeffrey himself and then um, his huge passion, Lunuganga, and of course, number 11 um, in Colombo, um, his home in Colombo. Um, we're here actually um, to celebrate Jeffrey's 100th birthday, which took place formally yesterday, and we had an amazing evening of celebration of talks with Kengo Kuma, the architect who um, is one of our featured artists as well in The Gift. But before I move through to the formal part of this evening, I just wanted to say that um, the trusts when we had, had a year-long program in planning and in place um, when the Easter Sunday attacks happened. And this was um, hugely shocking for all of us, of course. And we thought, um, we thought hard about what we should do, whether we should continue or not. Um, and we met as a group of trustees and reflected on the times, and we published this statement, which um, we feel very strongly about, because we, we have we reflected on these really ignoble acts of violence, and we used this time to reflect on what happens in this country, which has really always come together in the face of adversity through embracing our plurality. And this is something we felt that the centenary celebration underlines and um, embraces. So we decided that we would continue um, and that we felt we needed to continue emphatically. And the gift um, is one of a series of events happening over the year that embraces the hope um, that is crucial in, um, when we think about moving forward. And we feel actually that Jeffrey himself um, was a figure who embodied and embraced this effortlessly and without ever speaking about it. So just some quick highlights, things to watch out for. Um, of course, we are right now here looking at um, the gift program, but later on, Dianita's um, project, Box 507. And then later in the year, in September, the Greedy Forest taking place at the reconstructed Ina de Silva House at Lunagongo. And then we have an open buildings day later in October, and then the gift launches across the latter half of this year and early next year. 
We're also doing a major oral histories program. The reconstructed uh, Bentura Beach, very important project for Jeffrey, and fantastic to see that renovation. The, the trust works very hard with colleagues to think about what that legacy is and to participate in advocating for that. Um, and then right at the end of the year, a very important exhibition titled It's Essential to Be There, curated by our own Shari, our um, trust curator, Shari De Silva, that looks at the collection of drawings. Um, and finally, book, ended, uh, book, book ending the year with the memorial lecture of, being delivered by the magnificent um, Dhaka architect, Marina Tabasum, coinciding with the fifth um, a fifth edition of the Jeffrey Bauer Award for Architecture in Excellence. So that's our program. And let's now walk through into our talks program. Just before we go into talking with Dominic and Li Mingwei, who are on the stage with me, we framed the project at Lunuganga under the title, The Gift, because Lunuganga was a gift in every sense to Jeffrey himself. It was an intellectual space, it was an aesthetic space, an architectural space for him, a place that he problem solved, and he thought about his practice there. Um, and the idea of process is essential and captured in Lunuganga as a place. Um, and it was a place where many artists worked with him, many designers worked with him, it was a place of exchange, and the idea of gift felt so apt in this year of Jeffrey's birthday. Um, and so we will begin by talking about the work that Dominic Sanzoni has done, or is doing for us, and has been doing with um, Jeffrey's work for over four decades. I think for many of you, you don't really need an introduction to Dominic, but for me, I think of his photographic practice as a means of, of approaching the world. His friends, his family, his milieu, lovely picture of Angelan and Jeffrey, um, Chana looking extremely boyish, um, and of course, the um, photographing Lunuganga itself. Um, a number of images um, that we know are published as books. And then the work that he's been doing at Lunuganga in relation to picturing the people who also make the garden. Because make, the garden just doesn't happen. And certainly, Jeffrey thinks, thought very hard about that garden, but he, it's a collaboration. And I think the gift essentially also underlines the fact that these are collaborate, collaborative efforts that we all make to keep that garden alive. And it's a living thing. So Dominic, I just thought I would ask, begin, jump in by asking you, um, you know, you've been looking at that garden for 40 years now. Have you, um, and I, I know you, the published photographs are in black and white. Maybe a little 
sharing with us on the choice of that black and white. Hi, good evening everyone. And it's lovely that one of the photographs credited to me is not mine, so Ooh. it's like a bonus. Uh, <laughs> and I'm hoping for more of those through, through the evening. It was a very nice picture, I won't tell you which one. Uh, I can't, they all came from your website, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, thank you. Uh, yes, I've known that garden. I think I've been photographing it since about 1977, when I was back here on a summer holiday from England. And uh, it was really exciting for me at the time. I mean, Jeffrey, Jeffrey owned a Leica M3. Uh, I hadn't even touched a Leica M3. And he gave me this camera and said, go and take some pictures. Um, and it was lovely and it had a 21 millimeter lens on it, which he said was convenient because he never had to focus on anything. It was just always sharp. Yes, I've known that garden since that time. And then, yeah, it's been wonderful. It's been lovely to go back. You're familiar with it. You learn new things every time. Um, it's a very special place. But why black and white? Um, because well, you have taken yeah. pictures in color as well. Yeah, I think, well, years ago, Jeffrey, I think, mentioned that he always saw it in tonality. It's not a flower garden. There are no flower beds. There are no creepers going up with wonderful bougainvillea or whatever. Um, and that stuck with me. And I think I've always tended to see it in tones, in tonality, and I've tended to see it in black and white, or reflection and highlights and darkness, and that's been fun. I've had to photograph it in color as well, um, and that's been difficult. And more difficult than black and more white? More difficult because it's hard to see it in color. I see it in black and white, yeah. Mm. It's, uh, um, I'm trying to change. No, yeah. no. <laughs> so then when you took the pictures of the gardeners, they are also in black and oh, white. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, I would only see them in black and white. <laughs> I, would, I, would only, I, I wouldn't be able to conceive of those in color. Uh, I mean that, that's just, I'm afraid, yeah. what, I, what yeah. I see and what I'd like to do. Yeah. And I can't really explain why. Yeah. And then your work for the gift. Yes. You're thinking about that as uh, you are going to take hold of curating the selection? Yes. Um, yeah, and I think I'll be looking at I'm going to try and look at some of my very early pictures and also there'll be some photographs which are, haven't even been taken yet. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll be working right, I fear, right up till the last minute. Yeah. Um, can, can I just ask then this idea of time? How does time figure for you, given that? When you're going back to works that you've made early on, maybe say 30 years ago, how do, is change registered or not? Or do you go back to similar vistas? How, how are well, you thinking about that? I think when you're given an assignment, there are two, uh, well, two very different things that happen. If it's somewhere new, you're excited, you've never been there before, you try to, you're going to discover things, you're going to learn things. And then, so that's like meeting a new friend, and then you've got old friends that you've got to know over the years, and you're familiar with them, but you discover... Yeah, I mean, I think I have a sort of little set walk I seem to take. I need to break that pattern sometimes. 
Um, but there are some things I nearly always seem to go back to, or some places in the garden that I'm particularly fond of. Um, but the garden has changed a lot as well, you know, and when, and uh, so over that should. period, yeah. So it should. I mean, it's a garden. Trees yeah. will fall, trees will collapse, new ones will be planted. But uh, also Jeffrey's own interventions over that period, because it was also a time when he was making yes. other yeah. pavilions and yes. so on. That over that time. So you would be able to register those shifts. Yes, and I think... I don't think I've thought about that too much. I'm not sure that I think about anything too much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, when it's, what's interesting is to go back and see what you've done. And of course there's been change. Yeah. And to um, record some of that change. Yeah. And I can remember Jeffrey talking about the terraces going down to the water from yeah. the front which he was just making some of those at that time. Mm. Uh, it was nice to go back and see the Black Pavilion. I think it's called yes, the, Black, the Pavilion. Black Pavilion. And um, Isru, who now manages the garden, was very excited. And he said, oh, when I met him a couple of months ago, he said, you know, I have the Black and White book. Uh, that's a book I did with a man called Christoph Bonn, who's an angel, most wonderful person. And um, Isru was saying, you know, I have that book on my phone yeah. and I use it as a reference um, when I'm restoring something or need to replant something. And uh, when I was there a few days ago, I think last Poya day, he said, you know, I have to show you something new. And he took me down to the Black Pavilion and he'd replaced, I think very precisely, the doors that used to be at the back That's of it. That's right. And uh, for the first time I felt useful. <laughs> 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 he said, look, I was able to use your photograph. And uh, I'm not even sure that it was mine. It might have been Christoph's. Christoph and I had a wonderful thing about that book. I he thought you were the same person, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> Christ, um, it was lovely. We decided, working with Christoph, who's Swiss, an architect, very precise. Uh, he was very precise. He would say, I'd meet you at 3.20 by the water. Um, it was... Yeah, well, no one ever got, I never got there at 3.20, you know, we couldn't keep time. Uh, but we decided very early on that we would never put our name to which, who took the photographs. There you and are. And that was a very nice thing to do, and I've actually forgotten, so I now take credit for the best ones in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the, that immediately talks about collaboration. And, and relationships, and that Jeffrey's, um, his own personality was such that it, it was always an invitation. And it definitely collaboration, it was so, I think, I can't remember, I'm very bad with uh, concept of time or years, so I can't tell you when something began. But the whole way that that first book was put together was very different to the way things happen now. I mean, we used a thing called film, wonderful, um, processed. Christoph went back to England and made test prints, which he then br brought back to Sri Lanka to show Jeffrey. And uh, on one or two occasions I was there when he was showing Jeffrey prints. And most of the time, as Christoph puffed on his pipe and showed the pictures to Jeffrey, he was, you, you're, you're greeted with silence. Um, and that's, and, and Jeffrey just remained silent and you showed him another photograph and another photograph and finally said, oh, that one's nice. And you put one aside. But this, I think, happened over a period of a couple of years. You know, it was, ex 
And it was lovely to work with Christoph. Um, they, I think the inspiration for that book was a book called The English Garden, which had been printed in photogravure uh, and was beautiful. Um, I must one day try and find a copy. I think if the truth be told, the book was never printed as well as it might have been. It was, uh, and I hope one day that might happen. So that's a little project for the trust. Yes. Okay, thank you, Dom. I'm now going to move on to our second artist for this evening um, and um, would love to introduce you to Li Ming Wei, an artist who lives between Paris and New York, an artist I have known like Dominic since um, the 90s, um, actually. We've worked together on many projects and I thought I'd just briefly introduce you to the Bodhi Tree project that we did together um, for the building of a new museum, the, uh, the Queensland Gallery of Modern Art. It was a, a project that took five years in the end. So time, yes. as you say, is... Um, it, things take the time that it needs to to make things happen. So it's very nice to work with individuals who are happy to journey along time scales of varying sequences. Um, and so when I met Ming Wei in, in the mid-90s, um, we'd worked on another project, but this was for the opening of um, the Queensland Gallery's second site, the Gallery of Modern Art. And Ming Wei's practice is essentially about relationships and relationships that, have, um, that he nourishes and we nourish each other across the seas and um, places. The, this project brought him to Sri Lanka and it was, um, it was also a gift, a gift of a Bodhi tree from Anuradhapura via a series of um, um, monasteries to uh, the Queensland Art Gallery as an emblem of a new museum. To say a museum, when you open, it is only just the beginning and you will grow into being what you will be. And to remind us all of the possibilities of what a museum could be. And the Bodhi Tree project, of course, um, immediately made us, um, as a museum, think about what is a collection, because the tree is part of the museum's collection. How do we negotiate a collection object that is a living thing? Um, as well as bringing the tree to a museum and having to negotiate through the formalities of um, the Sangha and temple structures. It was a magnificent project. And then I also want to introduce a second work called Sonic Blossom because, again, this is a project that involves gifting, but this time the gifting of song and to think about sound as being an essential part of practice. Because um, this work, um, as you can see, this is an image of it being performed at the Pet Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it is, um, maybe I will ask Ming Wei to tell us a in a minute about Sonic Blossom and how you structured this work. Hello, I'm Ming Wei. Uh, it's my fourth time visiting Sri Lanka. It's a great honor to be here and to be on the same stage with Dom and with Silhania. 
So with Sari Blossom, um, it was a pro an invitation project to create a project for the inauguration of the Museum of Contemporary Art uh, in Seoul. So when I was back in Taipei about seven or eight years ago, uh, taking care of my mother when she was going through heart operation, I, this is when I got the invitation. So I told the curator, um, you know, at this time I'm paying attention to my mother's health and maybe when she's out of hospital, I'll have the energy to create something. So while I was taking care of her, I played Schubert's leader for her. Because when I was young, in hot summer nights like this in Taiwan, she would play Schubert's leader to calm me down in a very small volume. And I'll say, Mom, could you turn it up? I couldn't hear. She said, well, honey, you just need to be very quiet and sit down and you'll hear Schubert singing. But of course, I wasn't Schubert singing, it was Schubert's song. So for this project, what I did was that I worked with you know, classically trained singers, and each one of them, one at a time, in a beautiful costume, walking through the gallery at, at this point, at the Met, posing a question to one person at a time. So the question is, may I give you a gift of song? If that is something that you would like to receive from the stranger, then she invites you back to the gallery, sit down and sing a Schubert lead for you as a gift. So that's very simple, uh, but extremely delicate because of this intense exchange of strangers between this three minute and half moment. So, um, yeah. So that's uh, a project that Mingwei did with sound and gift. This is a third project that I also wanted to introduce you to because this is the work that will take on another form at Lunuganga. And these were a set of tubular bells that were part of a trilogy of sounds that were made for Mount Stuart. Yes, Mount Stuart is a Scottish um, castle on Isle of Butte. And when Lady Sophie asked me to go to her home to do a project, I thought, oh, it'll be just some Scottish home. But when I showed up, it was a 17th century castle. So I was quite stunned, and I thought it I would like to do a project with three sounds. And this is actually one of the sound in the garden. So this is what I brought to Luna Ganga. Uh, and if you go to Luna Ganga now, it's actually ready to receive you. Um, one of the challenges of making works like this in a situation like Sri Lanka is being ready and open and available to the site and the location's particularities. Maybe you can describe, because we have a wonderful team working on the realization of the Centenary Project, and Shairi is curator. Um, we also have Chris, who is our architect designer in the, in the team, and Shanika, who is project manager, and Tilani. So the four, four, these four young people working very closely with studios to realize a range of projects um, over the year, including this one at Lunuganga. Maybe you can describe the process and then the changes that needed to take place. Yes, the process of bringing this project here from Scotland is actually quite simple, like bring any project from anywhere to the site. Yeah. Um, so the tubes, 
were produced here with a specification. And then my studio manager, Sandy, came and worked with all of you to install this within about 10 days. There were some challenges because of the site. Um, it's quite different in terms of weather and the trees. There are not the same trees because in Scotland, we have four extremely old and tall lime tree, 400 years old in a perfect square. But here we only can find three trees. Um, so we have to change the design slightly, but still creating a circular structure. So that's the biggest challenge, but you all did a great job. So thank you so much. And uh, one little thing that we have to fix is try to convince a squirrel not to chew on the uh, ropes. <laughs> um. The other shift that took place with the bells coming to Lunaganga and in Sri Lanka is the shift from copper to brass. And the scale, because of the site, the scale of the bells themselves and the site itself having a different circle of sound. Um, but what has been fantastic in terms of listening to those bells is that the brass bells have a very particularly Sri Lankan sound yes. as distinct from the copper tubes yes. and, it, and for us who know Kathrogama it suddenly felt like an echo of um, sounds that we hear in Sri Lanka. Yes, it, you're right actually um, the tubes that we had for Scotland actually was um, made of bronze and we work with a particular studio that makes bronze bell for the temples in Taiwan and Japan actually. But this one here we're able to work with a local studio to produce a different sound which is slightly higher sound than these very deep temple bell which works so beautifully in that site and also uh, the way we situated this project is next to a beautiful bamboo grove, which these tubes reminded me of those bamboo tubes uh, that is right behind. Uh, you could see it right there. Yeah. The other part of, um, I mean, that's essential to this work is um, the bills only work because there is the movement of air. And... Um, the air makes the bells work. There's this wonderful relationship because then you begin to hear the rhythm of wind. And, and in, when you stand in the center of that circle, because that's the invitation, is you walk in and you stand in the middle of the bells, you begin to hear the rhythm of wind, which is something that you really don't know. And it's the bells that give you this gift of sound. Exactly. So last yesterday, where, when I was standing in the middle of the circle, closed my eyes, and then I feel the wind brushing against my face softly, and then I hear the bell start singing, right? And then gets stronger and stronger and stronger, and suddenly the wind just started to go away and stopped. But the sound's still there, but you could s hear it shimmering and just disappearing into the forest. So the, the sound follows the footstep of the wind. The reason to um, bring this particular work to Lunaganga was thinking also about bringing an, another element. There are many, many artists have uh, made work at Lunaganga over the, the life of the, the garden, which is now, you know, 
I think coming up to 70 years, um, is how sound, a very important sense, amplifies your experience of the garden. Because we see it, we feel it, and to hear it is a whole new sensorium to offer to visitors to the garden. So that was a, a very important reason in terms of the many different, the six different projects that are part of the gift. Um, with Mingwei's work, it's the gift of sound that we have brought to the table. So with that, I'm going to now invite Shairi to come up onto the stage with Dainita and Tenu to um, introduce two more artists to to us. Thank you, Sohanya. So the two artists we have here, Chandragupta Tenora and Vainita Singh, both actually have work um, installed and on view at the moment in Colombo. Vainita uh, Singh's Box 507 will be open to the public from tomorrow. Uh, Tenu from tonight, sorry, and uh, Tenu's um, show, his new exhibition, MLB or Mob, will be uh, opened yesterday on July 23rd, as has been his practice from 1997, um, in recognition of um, the July riots um, and from 1983. Um, and I think Tenu's work has always um, been a way of engaging with the political situation in Sri Lanka. Um, he uses his sardonic humor and a range of media to explore um, events from year to year. And each year, I think he builds on some of those previous concepts. Um, this work from, t from his 2007 series, Camouflage, um, will I'm going to show a sequence of images and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about them together. Um, Thorns from 2010. And then this series, the Beautification series from 2013, uh, particularly relevant to what Penu's envisioning at Lunoganga. Um, if we look at that closely, we see how detail is really an important way for Penu to communicate um, some of the things he's exploring. Um, here you see how he's using uh, these cast bricks. We'll talk about that technique a little bit too. Um, this is all from the 2013 series, the beautification series. Sorry, so we'll... Um, so to start with Tenu, could we... Um, you worked at Lunuganga before with uh, Tirtha. Could you describe both what it is that you find exciting about the garden and Jeffrey's work, as well as some of that, um, the previous work. Yeah, thank you for inviting me here. So a little bit my voice is going out because of the, my mob <laughs> sculpture. So the resin affected my voice. And, um, but yeah, I, I have working with Lunuganga from 2001 when we had uh, uh, our workshop, but before that we visited a couple of times with my students to do when the residency started, Lunoganga with the artists. 
and so to show them how the residence artist works there. And uh, yeah, that's a very um, space I like always. And uh, the space where I'm going to work is uh, where I lived when I, 2001, for the, our camp. And uh, place, and that place also I work, I know the place very well because I made a um, kind of collaborative work with Tripura Kashyap, so the Indian artist, dancer, and she responded to my work, Moon and Ladder. Then I used the same Bhava element with adding only the ladder to that and reinterpreting the same forms to uh, the kind of different kind of work. So that is why the very important place for me and the and that spacious and openness and lines, how it's work. And same time, how he cooperate with the nature and man-made structure. It's very important for me. So then uh, that is why the might be my work. I'm going to place in between. Yeah. We've sp I mean, we've spoken, Suhanya did speak a little bit about Lunuganga's history as a place for exploration and some of the ways in which Jeffrey used that space that has been kind of contagious in the energy that it has given other artists. Um, and with you, certainly, the and Jeffrey was also very, um, just like you mentioned, uh, there are very strict axes, there are points where there's absolute control and then there's points where there's complete submission to, to the environment. Um, and in your work, I think um, the grid and the line has a very strong influence. And then you also, um, you put in that element of what happens often when people or forces um, take, take control. And so could you, and because perhaps you could very briefly tell our audience what you're hoping to explore in the Cinnamon Hill site yeah. And also about how that control and play with line and grids. Yeah, um, because I know that I visited there to to my the the working visit with Shairi. So at that time I had a no idea what kind of work I'm going to do, but I have an invitation to work there. So I know that my drawings are very interesting and it might be I have to show something and the walls and I took photographs and how the measurements and but anyway so I thought it has to be something permanent uh, kind of there is nothing permanent but anyway it's kind of impermanent permanent things and <laughs> so I thought might be the better th I saw suddenly uh, I knew that there are bricks a lot of bricks he used but suddenly the, there are the bricks laying of the patterns it reminds me the beautification my project. And so then I strike, I have to do the uh, drawings on the floor, not on the wall framed. But there will be, uh, might be the drawings which I worked towards that detailing of my works as a drawing project. But, but actual work will be remaining there and it will be embedded to the, uh, the front of the Cinnamon Hill uh, as for how it called is a foyer or what you that uh, the entrance in front, yeah? yeah entrance yeah so that in front of that then now we 
there is only gravel. So then again, so I might intervene some other places also where the more bricks I will remove might be the Bahamas one brick slightly and put in my one brick there kind of drawing so and it's like a camouflage because in Sri Lanka when I did the show and uh, because we are used to look at only this way you know horizontally we are not looking at our flaws and I had that experience when I had a Lionel Wen show. Everybody came here and said, where is your show? I said, you can't get down because nothing on the walls. <laughs> so that is why the, again, uh, it's like uh, you are living with the work, you know, you are going over it and suddenly you recognize there's a kind of art. And same time I might use horrible images but beautifully, like bones and thorns and uh, kind of rough uh, uh, barbed wires. It's a remembering 1983 to up today even. And uh, unfortunately, I'm missing the Baba's lectures all the time because July 23rd is his birthday and my exhibition every time opening. Nearly 21 years I'm missing it. So that, <laughs> so kind of thing and, but I can't say it. Uh, so that is why the, that memory, we have to do it beautifully as it is and same time kind of uh, a lot of things to, you have to look at and even within that I make uh, secretly hidden images within the image, you know, camouflage everywhere. Yes, and I remember that conversation we had at Lunuganga where we were looking at the way Bawa controls the ground plane and really kind of guides you through the space with that plane. And um, I, I would love for you to speak a little bit more about his version of beautification and some of the other um, more tyrannical ways beautification has been employed or deployed in this country. Yeah, because here in Colombo it had like erasing memory. That's a project towards beautification. So eviction of the Islam people from Colombo and slums and you know, erasing everything. And so the making straight lines and you have to think only the straight and it's a controlling your mind. But when Baba, is, he likes horizontals and I know that story that he removed some shapes from the landscape to get his perfect view of that line. But he uh, used his uh, kind of dialogue with the nature and he manipulated, not harming the thing. So, but here, you know, they tried to harm the people's mind, not look like a beautification, but you didn't felt that it's harmed. So that is why the two different things and uh, that is why it's very important and uh, Bhava's beautifications and uh, the Gota's beautification. So we had, we had a political period then. I'm afraid of it. You know. okay. And are there <coughs> other things about, I mean, you also, like many of our artists, know Lunuganga over the years. Um, are there other things about the space and maybe even more generally about 
Bauer's work that um, you're hoping to engage with or that you would like to explore more? Uh, still, I don't know, might be the, so while I am doing, but I want, I'm going to change that gravel area. So no, slightly, not, it look like a Baba's work. So I'm going to continue the same brick patterns a little bit and change it. And I'm going to include the, uh, even the roots of the, uh, the trees is coming into the my bricks as uh, three-dimensional form. And so that is why the three different techniques I'm going to use and uh, with help of our ceramic department, that's a brick burning thing they will do, but I paint on the bricks and I carve the bricks and same time I sculpt on the bricks also. But uh, that sculpture will be the, like gravels, you know, the making, um, you can't see it immediately, but you have to feel it later. Yeah, I, thi I think it's interesting because your work does explore many media, even, even the current show is, there's cast bronze, there's painting, there's drawing. Um, and do you feel that, and I think when we started, this project was, it started with the bricks and the ceramic sculpture and then expanded because one medium was not enough. Um, and do you think that also speaks to the kind of, um, that plurality that's in Jeffrey's work and the many layers in the spaces? Mm. Is that something that maybe triggered that? That kind of, the, the way this, this project has grown? Yeah, because the, I like that space, how he is controlling, you know, so that is the same time he's control our minds, but not saying that <laughs> he's controlling our minds, <laughs> but it's a very beautifully, yeah, so that's the way might be the, that line I'm going to take, so the when, how, when I'm laying the bricks, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, you don't see the, my work might be the, I'm not going to harm the Baba's work, I want to, Enhance a little bit, give the beautiful, beautiful, little bit touch. Thank you, thank yeah, you. Thanks. Um, we now have Vani to sing, um, whose, whose exhibition is here. If you haven't already seen it, it's open today. Please do. Um, it's it's tremendous work. Um, Vainita, um I know. I'm going to show one of your projects, the Museum of Shedding, uh, which I know will inform in some way what, um, what's to come at Nunuganga. Um, and I think, I think this work is amazing in the way it it's not about the photographs, as you mentioned to me, and it's, it's really about the kind of, to me, it, it seems like it's about the, um, the way one inhabits one's own work, the kind of familiarity that arises from making and caring for work. Um, what I will do is show these five images and then we'll, we'll talk about them more. I think um, I mean the most important thing is the role of the photograph in this work in, as a larger project. 
Could you speak to that, please? Uh, the photograph has a very minuscule role in all of my work. I love saying it again and again. <laughs> the photograph is just raw material for me. Um, it's, it's just the starting of a work. It's what gives me the clues for where I might be able to take the work, what form it can develop into. Uh, so it's really just the raw material. And it does not... It, it's not enough in itself, for me, for me. I want much more out of photography. I feel, you know, I want to use every opportunity to push the rug from under photography, to dislodge the image, to, to, to make you think more about the image. And as you will see inside, to strip the image from itself, which I didn't think would, would be possible, but. It is. Indeed it is. And here, um, can, we, can we talk in this particular project and then because our audience will see okay. the gallery, um, the role of the structures and the other, um, the other materials that are part of the exhibition, part of the work? Um, I think I had for many years struggled with many, many curators, made them unhappy, made myself unhappy because I didn't like the way photography is hung on the walls. It was really annoying that the image was stuck to the wall, that I couldn't change the image if I wanted to. Now, the whole wall changes if I sh shift an image. That's, to me, the beauty of photography, you know? I can take an image out of here, put it there, it becomes something else. And yet, the gallery world, the museum world, even the publishing world, wanted a certain order out of photography. The image has to be used in a certain way. And then I thought, I thought, the older people will know better. Then typically I thought, oh, the Western people might know better because they have a longer history of working with photography as an art form, traveled, met people, saw museums, and I realized it's all the same. Exactly what Stieglitz did in 1929. Print in frame on the wall. That's fine. But that's just one way. Photography got stuck somehow with that. And I can get into that, it's related to the economics. But I wanted to make a structure where no curator, no museum director could tell me that I cannot shift my images, that I cannot change my images, and that I cannot change the space. It's no problem if a sculptor does that, but somehow photography or classic photography has those sort of strictures on it. Now, I don't want to run knives through my photographs and spray graffiti on them. I love, I love the raw material. I love photography. I love its arc quality of being docu a document for history. I love all of that. But I want to have more for it. So I realized that nobody was actually, even though they were older, even though they were whiter, even though they were in bigger museums, they didn't have any other ideas. So I thought, okay, I'm going to make a structure that suits my purpose. So in these structures, I'm quite wicked. I have made it so that the curators will risk a lot if they want to show these prints on the wall. 
because they are glazed prints, unglazed prints, sorry. They don't have any glass. So you have to show them either in the structure or in the boxes inside them. But sometimes, as you showed earlier, I might want the structure to be empty with the residue of these images. Now, no museum allowed me to do that even when I made the museums. So now, I go in there and I will tell them that, you know, I'd love to come and slide, make some shifts. Would it be all right if I come in January and shift the Museum of Chance? And they say, yeah, how wonderful. And I say, no, 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 I'll come on my own. You don't even have to host me. And I go in there and I can take all these images out and put them into those storage cabinets as well as the boxes. And then you have the empty structure. By the time the curator hears that I've emptied the whole museum out and they've written their report, I'll be out of there. So I can also keep my work alive. I hate how photography gets castrated and somehow deadened behind glass. I don't, for myself, I should stop talking about what the larger role of photography should be. But for me, it's very limiting. I, so I have to find my own form. I made Museum Bhavan, the family of nine traveling museums, for my house. My house was going to be Museum Bhavan. But then they all got acquired by other museums. So then I didn't have a museum for myself. And after it had all gone, I thought, let me make this museum of shedding. Like, what is it? So this museum, once it finishes its tour, is going to come to my house, and I'm going to live inside it. That's my bed, my desk, a stool for one visitor, a stool and a table for me to eat. And then I've got these storage cabinets on the side so that, you know, sometimes in the middle of the night, I want to change an image. So I can just wake up, take the image out, flip it, and in the morning I wake up to a different museum. So I'm the museum cur curator, the director, the keeper, the registrar, and no museum can tell me I can't do this. I love it, I love it. Um, and I love the use of the structure to kind of maintain your agency. Absolutely. Photographers, okay, let me not talk about photographers, but. I felt in many years I gave, gave up all that autonomy. And I want to be the author of my work. The photograph is just the raw material. I don't care how beautiful you think that raw material is. I can't put 30 tomatoes here and say that's your great dinner. Um, that's not my kind of cuisine. I feel, I feel the photographers have, or I as a photographer, have to take more authorship of my work. And I think very much related to what we just discussed, um, what is the role of sequence and of chance? Because you've used both those words. And um, many of your works do take the forms of books, where, again, I think you've found some amazing ways to deal with sequence. But I would love for you to speak a little bit more about that. In the early days, when I thought, the curators in America would know, have all the answers. The only place I got some autonomy to make the sequence of my work was in the book. And that's why I loved the book form, because it was my sequence. It wasn't, you know, curators do terrible things with photographs. They take a picture of some lady with her dogs that you think is wonderful, uh, that you adore, and they put it next to someone living in a drain pipe in Calcutta, to make their political statement. 
And excuse me, I have the brains too to decide what politics I want to play when and where. So the sequence always gets shifted around according to the curator's agenda. And I make my own agenda. So the place that I could really make my own agenda was in the book, because it's bound. But now, as you will see in the box inside, I play with the sequence as well. And chance is like the key word for my life's work, really. Chance and accident, and I think all the torture and stress I go through to try is to just try and create the situations that allow for that chance to blossom, you know? To not say, I've given Shairi a deadline and therefore I have to submit this proposal. I will not do that. I will not let that part be boxed in because I have to leave room for chance. I have to leave room for accidents. But they're not really accidents because it's, I know I have to strip photography of its photoness, something like that. Yeah, and that the conversation we had just a few minutes ago, um, really about your process and the way, um, as an Indian artist, and which a context that is not dissimilar to Sri Lanka, where there's so much you cannot anticipate or control, could you speak a little bit more about how you have, um, in your practice, embraced that um, that uncertainty and elaborated on what you mentioned just now? Thank you, that's a great question, because if you had only asked me about being an Indian artist, I would have uh, <laughs> jumped down your throat. I've sort of slammed tables when that has... But that's, I think that is a big strength, because in the way that one can work so organically here, so that if the museum is on its way to New York and it breaks and it goes into half, I can get it back with the carpenters, we build another structure, we do something else. Uh, if nothing else works, it's always a desk for some friend's house, lay the museum on its side, it becomes a bed. So in Hindi, we have this lovely word, jugar, where you can just sort of somehow put things together. And that I love about working in India, you know? That when people say, oh, you're working with this joinery, you should come to Japan, you should work in London, why are you doing this in India? Because the kind of experimentation in India that I can do in India, I cannot do anywhere else. Um, I can't walk into a press and say, hold it, you know? This is something going on here. So that part I love, and I could never live. Whatever happens politically in the country, it's, it's clear what is happening in the country. Um, I, I could not live anywhere else. I need to have that chance, that accident, that those problems, it's always a problem of shipping, it's always a problem of insurance, it's always a problem of deadlines, and how do you give, do all of that and still do more? So it's like constantly turning it around on its head, and it's like, give me a problem, and I'm gonna find the solution for it, and something new always happens. It's a torturous process, but it works. I know, and I know it because we see it in Jeffrey Bauer's work as well, and that's going to be my last question. Um, you have been um, photographing and experiencing his work for many years. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about what his work means to you. Um, I know you have favorites, and I loved the way you described why they were your favorites. 
So maybe we could end with um, just a few words on that. I feel very, very connected to Jeffrey Bava, and I don't regret that I didn't meet him in his lifetime because I meet him continuously in some of his buildings. I think Jeffrey Bava led me to, uh, led me to architecture. So whether, and you'll see in the work to come, it's all architecture and montages and stripping away architecture. It's a lot of architecture. But when I finally got to Sri Lanka, waiting to sort of meet with Channa, um, I started to recognize something in his aesthetic, especially when I went to Kandalama. And I thought, what is it? What, how do I know that reflection? How do I know that corner? And how, I haven't been to Sri Lanka, but I know his work. I know it very well. And then I realized through conversations with Channa um, that he too, greatly admired the Padmanabhapuram Palace in Tri outside Trivandrum, which is my favorite building in India. So that gave me, I said, okay, so we're on a similar aesthetic wavelength. And then this process of walking in the corridors in Kandalama, I try to go there every year, because to me, it's a, it's a deeply spiritual experience. Spiritual, not in that religious sense, of course, but there's something else. It's not just about bricks and mortar. There is a soul there. And I, the problem for me with all the photographs I made in Jeffrey Bava's buildings, because it's been about three, four years now, one or two trips every year, uh, only focusing on that, I wasn't able to get what I had experienced in that corridor in Candelama. I, I knew something had to shift for me. And, and it did, and you'll see it inside. Thank you, Dianita and Thainu. Um, we'll now have Sean Anderson and Christopher Silva speak on the last project, Kengokuma's Pavilion. Those of you who, those of you who were at the lecture yesterday, um, Kengo did end with that pavilion project. Uh, Kengo's unable to join us today, and Sean will take us a little bit through what pavilions, um, the role of pavilions in architecture. And then Chris will tell us a little bit more about the project we're working on with Kumasan. Thank you. So good evening. Thank you, Dominic and Barefoot, for having us this evening. And thank all of you for coming. Uh, and in particular to the Lunaganga and Jeffrey Bawa Trusts for uh, inviting these incredible artists and architect uh, who is sitting here in honor in between Chris and myself this evening. Uh, when they asked me to come uh, for this evening, we were talking about what the role of temporary architecture might be in the context of a, a year-long exhibition that is ostensibly about art, but when we think about art and its relationship to space and time and labor, as we've seen this evening, so if we begin with Dominic's photographs, we're imagining a kind of the work of making and imagining a garden. With, with uh, Mingwei, we have the experience of that garden, 
both through temporality and also one's relationship to nature. With Tenu, we have not only the political, but the material. And we could say that that material also has a politics associated with it. So when we experience his work, we're coming in terms with the very ground, as he describes so nicely. This ground that holds and supports so much and is also the source of great divide. And lastly, with Dianita and this notion of making one's own museum and making one's own time through image and through the process or labor, for instance, of making that image, taking away that image and occupying that space in between. So it is very befitting, I think, especially from Kumasan's uh, lecture last night, and then to have the great privilege of working with him a little bit, to think of architecture and a temporary architecture at that as being one of the works that will be on show at Lunaganga. So in order to perhaps understand what the role of that temporal kind of condition for architecture is, I thought what I would do is a kind of uh, palim uh, palimpsest, a brief history of temporary architecture. So it will be very fast. But I want to talk about how each of these elements that the artists have described this evening are embedded in architecture uh, and in a history of architecture, if you will. Um, and I'm going to show a few of the temporary installations that I do at the Museum of Modern Art every year. And then Chris is going to take over and talk a little bit more about Kumasan's project for the Naganga. So I wanted to just step back. I, I think I always have to step back for a moment and think about why temporary architecture is, uh, is important. Why is it significant to not only the history of architecture uh, more broadly, but why we might be interested in showing uh, temporary architecture in a garden like Lunaganga. And I just, I was thinking about, I could have shown the, an image of the Eiffel Tower, I could have shown images of Japanese buildings that have been taken apart and put back together again, but I thought uh, with the Crystal Palace building that was built outside of London, in 1851 for the first great uh, world's exhibition. Um, this is a structure that was made out of cast iron with the first use of multiple glass, repetitive glass elements. But it wasn't the structure of the building itself that was so significant at the time. It was actually what was going on inside of it, which were a series of displays from all over the world. So you could imagine that architecture in this case became the container for, but also representation of, all of the cultures and all, whether we like them or not, but all of these cultures, these images, these fascinations that were brought, transported to this space for the people and the visitors to enjoy. So architecture in this case became, while temporary, became a manifestation of a nation or a world's values. And I always like to think that architecture embeds in it a value system. A value system not only of the architects, but also the cultural, historical, economic, political uh, value systems of the place in which it's located. 
We are surrounded, I can see cranes here now that are indicative of a certain value system, uh, whether we like it or not, that is changing the face of Colombo, much like the architecture that we see here of Joseph Paxton. But if we step forward maybe 50, 100 years, no, 75 years, in Barcelona, which was uh, also a temporary architecture. This was the Barcelona Exhibition House, designed by Mies van der Rohe. It is still here, not in this particular site, but uh, nearby. This house became emblematic not only for what modern materials and modern architecture signified at the time, 1929, uh, also an important year for the opening of the Museum of Modern Art, uh, but also signified what it could mean to live in this new modern way, this new modern space, in which columns were mirrors, the materials were book-cut marble, surfaces were as important as planes, and the planes became extensions of the landscape and so forth. The Barcelona uh, Exhibition House, or, or, or the Barcelona Pavilion, as it's uh, more commonly known, is emblematic then of a value system that was transforming also ideas about technology. By the time we reach the mid-40s with an architect like Buckminster Fuller and his geodesic domes, his uh, Dymaxian uh, deployment unit, this is the first time that his, this temporary architecture would be shown in the world in the courtyard at MoMA. You can see it here uh, under construction by curators, I'm afraid, Dianita. Uh, and uh, you also see one of his diagrammatic drawings here to show that the ge geometry of the Dymaxian unit was very much a part of his understanding, not only of structure, but how people could live uh, in this temporary, contemporary space. That became a series, actually, at MoMA that uh, soon was to be known as House in the Garden. So a few years later, this is uh, MoMA's garden at the time, in the mid-40s. Uh, this is a project by Marcel Breuer. Uh, and Breuer designs this new modern house in which people, visitors to the museum, could come and visit. And you could occupy and see these spaces very much of the moment to think about materials. So this was an all-timber structure. There were skylights. All the furniture was saranen uh, and Breuer, of course. Uh, so it was, again, signifying this way of thinking about a modern architecture in, in a context that you might not think of it otherwise. The last of the exhibition houses that, uh, or one of the last, I should say, second to last exhibition houses that were built uh, also in the MoMA garden was the Japanese exhibition house. And this was a gift by Nelson Rockefeller to the museum. And 110 Japanese craftsmen were brought from Kyoto to build this house piece by piece, element by element. There are no nails in this, uh, in this structure. And it uh, sat here for, sat for amount, about a year before it was completely dismantled, each piece wrapped uh, in an obi or in a piece of paper, depending on its significance. And then the following year was rebuilt by curators 
for about six months uh, and then dismantled again and taken to uh, Philadelphia where it stands now in the botanical gardens. I find this, this kind of intervention in a museum context really fascinating because why would you build a, a traditional 17th century Japanese house in New York City at a moment when in fact Japanese and American tensions were at great, you know, great divide. And in fact, when, when this house opened and the priests were blessing the house, it was to signify a rapprochement between Japan and the US through art, through architecture, via the museum. Right? So we could think now that architecture, uh, Japanese or otherwise, signified uh, a geopolitical move. And I just wanted to show that, in fact, Bawa himself designed a temporary structure uh, in, uh, in Osaka in 1970. Uh, you can see in the upper right uh, the, a very hazy image of, uh, of the exterior on the right with Lockheed's leaf in the center and then one of his beautiful sketch drawings, uh, I'm not sure by whom, uh, for the facade. And then the interior were Ina de Silva banners, uh, among other artists. But here you have, in an expo, an architect from Sri Lanka imagining what contemporary Sri Lanka means at 1970, and what that might mean for foreign audiences to see it and to experience it. So I have the great privilege every year to, uh, as a curator, to uh, organize the Young Architects Program, which started 20 years ago this year uh, at MoMA PS1, so our sister institution in Long Island City. And uh, the Young Architects Program was the first of its kind in which uh, we have a North American-wide, including Mexico, uh, architecture competition. Uh, you must be within 10 years of leaving architecture school. You can't have a huge office yet, uh, if, if that's the case. Uh, and we invite five finalists uh, to come, present their ideas for the museum courtyard. So it's a very large courtyard in front of MoMA PS1. Uh, and then this becomes a three-month-long architectural installation uh, that is partly uh, a gateway, if you will, to uh, what we call the warm-up music series. So architecture here is threshold. It is uh, a great moment to uh, enjoy the summer when it's not 100 degrees or 50 degrees, uh, as the case may be. Um, but it also encourages that each architect must think sustainably, must think about light, must think about darkness, must think about access to water. And every year for the 20 years, the architects have then signaled ways in which we could think about temporariness and about building. So the first, uh, I just wanna show a few images so you can see um, the difference every year that happens, but also I, I understand these projects to be a barometer of what architects are thinking about at any particular moment. So PF1, which is a take on PS1, this was a, a garden, organic garden, grown in cardboard tubes 
then assembled all over the site in this wave that covered uh, and became a shading device uh, for the courtyard. Uh, this is a public farm one, I should say. And then all of the, all of the vegetable plants that you see here, uh, the vegetables were distributed to public schools all over uh, Queens uh, as a significant, again, a kind of reciprocity between the architecture, the museum, and the architects. Another year, uh, party wall designed by Coda, uh, Caroline O'Donnell. These are uh, the cast-offs of skateboards. So when you make a skateboard that you go, you know, on the street, uh, there's a lot of waste. So this entire structure, uh, with the exception of the, the steel structure that's holding it up, is made out of the cast-offs of, of skateboard structures. Hi-Fi in the living, one year later, these are made out of uh, algae that is having a chemical reaction with not only uric acid, but also water and mycelium. So these are mycelium bricks. They're extremely lightweight. They are not the heaviness of a regular brick uh, and in fact are very light. But what the architects uh, were trying to suggest here was that we could understand building with new materials uh, could be far less wasteful and far more economic. So also just to show you uh, a slight difference, slightly blurry image here, of uh, we have Young Architects program in Rome, in Istanbul, in Seoul, uh, in Santiago de Chile. Uh, and so uh, in each of those countries, they have their own program and own competition. So this uh, from last year was uh, organic, uh, hydroponically grown garden in front of the Maxi, the Contemporary Art Museum in Rome. And then uh, just a few uh, last images here. Uh, this is a project done by two very young architects from Mexico City, um, made out of the cast-off ropes of a sailboat manufacturer. So left, the, here you can get an understanding of the courtyard. And just to keep in mind, uh, for the last image that you'll see, this view is now impossible because Long Island City, Queens has become the center of a massive building campaign. In fact, so much that we cannot show our James Terrell sculpture anymore because of the shadow of a new building that is blocking the light that we would use for that sculpture. So this view is no longer possible and uh, the courtyard in essence changes because of, of what's happening around it. This is a 2015 installation made out of bamboo uh, in Seoul at the MMCA Museum. Also, I think this is indicative of, of Kumasan's waves and organic forms. Cosmo, one of the most popular that we had. Uh, this is a very large um, uh, festive machine, if you will. It was on wheels. It moved around the courtyard and purified water. Uh, at the same time. And so the warm-up series that we have in the courtyard every Saturday uh, is host to around 4,500 to 5,000 people dancing, drinking, and doing Lord knows what uh, in this courtyard every weekend. So 
we have to imagine what it means for a visitor to encounter these projects. This is a, a project from last year by a young architectural team that was very interested in mirrors and how mirrors became sites of displacement. So everywhere you would walk in the courtyard, you could see a reflection of maybe your friend or friends in the opposite side of the courtyard. And simultaneously, if you looked up, the mirrors reflected all of the buildings that were being built at the same time. So you never quite knew where you were uh, in this space. And then a project that we opened two weeks ago, uh, I'm <laughs> it's hard to believe I'm looking at this now, um, we opened and I came to Sri Lanka. So um, this is a really beautiful work um, by a young team, uh, again, of Mexico City. Uh, it is about four and a half stories tall. It's made out of scaffolding. So again, a commentary on what kinds of materials one can use to build. So this is scaffolding that is strong enough to support 1,500 two-by-fours that are all encrusting, if you will, the exterior. And then you can kind of see the interior. I'll point it out. This here is a very large print of jungle, of jungle scene. Uh, we have a pink waterfall that's also four and a half stories tall that provides cooling, um, the hammocks. But what's really intriguing here is, and like Tenu's work in a way, is that it's very political. So the hammocks were made by a, a prison cooperative in Yucatan. The jungle print is made by a cooperative also in Yucatan. But the whole idea of entering into this space was that, in fact, it would block the view of all the, the development that's going on, literally erase it. So when you walk into this uh, panorama, cyclorama, if you will, you no longer are in the city, but you're in this space of imagination and projection. So a, another similar way of thinking about Kumasan's work. But I wanted to, to end with, uh, uh, two years ago, a project that we worked on with the architect Jenny Sabin. You can see the first new building being built. There are now five in that view that block the sky. Jenny uh, is both an engineer and an architect. And for this project, she invented a robotic knitting process in which robots were programmed to knit this uh, textile uh, that she had invented and sprayed with a bioreactive chemical, natural chemical, that um, I think, no, if it's showing up like this, I had a day photo and a night photo. So uh, during the day, uh, it's white, pure white, and provides shade and uh, the light, the solar gain of this material absorbs the light and over the course of the day into night it turns purple. So literally that the architecture as an organic process, it's modeled after cellular structures in, in space, that uh, in fact the architecture was alive. And so with that I will hand this over to Chris to talk about Kumasan and his project. Thank you, Sean. 
Hi everyone, I'm Christopher Silva, passed out from University of Moratu last year and working as design associate of Bava 100 team. So uh, what you see here is a concept model of uh, the pavilion structure that Ken, uh, Kumasan has proposed to be, be built in uh, Lunukanga. Uh, it will be like a 12-module uh, structure that like each module get produced separately. Uh, and Ken, uh, Kumasan and his team was inspired by local Kitul craftsmen and their craftsmanship, where they do like amazing decorative works and structural works with use of Kitul ran, which is like the stem of the Kitul flower. And so what you see here is like the process of this, uh, like a mo uh, basic module that we produced to show to, uh, Kengosan. Uh, the steel structure is done by uh, local craftsmen like uh, Bentota Workshop, which is located near Lunuganga. And like uh, what is the next photograph is the Kitul craftsmen uh, like producing the Kitul ran, like seasoning them in like outdoors to make it a reality. And this is uh, like the workspace of Disna, like the uh, talented crafts lady who's making like our drawings and proposals to a reality. And she's using this primitive, like pretty primary methods and primary tools to make this complex design, like, like this amazing artwork. So, what you see here is the detailing and the weaving patterns that Kumasan proposed us to use in the uh, pavilion. Uh, so, like it, the middle mesh is not visible once the weaving with the kitul ran is done. It's like uh, it's a two-layered uh, weaving pattern, as like it's a three-dimensional structure. You would see it from all two sides, like from inside and outside, as you saw in the model concept model that they shown. And the next photograph shows the craftsmanship, sorry, craftsmanship of the lady that who are working with us, like we, like the edging and the neat uh, in, like, uh, final touches to the corners of the rough metal structure, which, is, which shows the organic form, like, uh, which enhances the organic form of this uh, structure that Kumasan designed. So what you see here is the final result, like that's uh, one of 18 modules that uh, in, in the initial uh, uh, design work. So the, that's going to be the first module that we produce. The second one is in under construction at the moment. Uh, so th that's how this uh, pavilion work is happening with Kumasan and his associates. Thank you. I might just ask our artists to come on the stage and Shairi as well, just because we also have another special birthdays to celebrate. And today is Dominic's birthday. 
And we thought we needed to say happy birthday, Dom. So we also have a birthday cake, and will you join me in singing happy birthday? Happy birthday to you. Thank you all for coming and enjoy the evening. Come and have a piece of cake. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, and of course, we've got Dianita's opening in a minute.